I had to say where my drinking began, which first time began it, I might say it started with my first blackout, or maybe the first time I sought blackout, the first time I wanted nothing more than to be absent from my own life. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Leslie Jameson, author of the new book, The Recovering, Intoxication and Its Aftermath. Plus readings by Carmen Jimenez-Smith, Jenny Shia, and Lisa Cross-Smith. And so much more. So stick around. So we mentioned last time that Kevin has something of a, I don't know, what would you call it? It's a budding, it's a, it's budding a, library. It's a sticky note lexicon. It's a sticky that's note growing lexicon. on my computer. Yes. Um, it started as one sticky note and now it is many. Um, and these are, these sticky notes contain words that we think should be words that aren't words. Right. And essentially they are words now because we use them. Yeah. And language is, you know, morphology is, is a part of language and mm-hmm. language changes and grows and evolves. Right. Um, how did that even start? Where did that start? Uh, well, I've been thinking about that and mm-hmm. it started with the word liminary. Right. Um, yes. And I, I think as, as, as close as I can recall, I, I think what I was going for was liminal there. Mm-hmm. What, in my mind, I was looking for liminal, but I just got caught up in liminary. Mm-hmm. I think you know, obviously that's a cross between luminary and liminal. Right. A liminal luminary. <laughs> um, but I had luminary in my head and I looked it up in the dictionary and of course it was there because <laughs> it's, it's not, not a actually word. a word. It should be a word. And um, I just was, I was perplexed why it wasn't there. So I emailed you, I recall. Okay. And I think I just put liminary in the subject line and then I said this should be a word. Okay. And then you came back with a, a pretty quick definition Okay. Word, okay. Which is great. I'll, I'll read it. It's a noun. All right. Um, whatever comes after the preliminary, the middle, <laughs> the bulk. Or if you're talking about a person, it would be a person in the middle, in transition, of the in-between. Mm. Uh, not yet a luminary. Yes. That's really what that is. So, wow, I, man. and that stuck. Yeah. So it's I a can't, good definition. It is a good def- definition for sure. <laughs> I do um, say so. <laughs> I added the not yet a luminary. Okay, yeah, but, which is key. Um, yeah. But um, I can't say as I've actually used luminary since it was created mm. uh, by us, mm-hmm. but it's still, that's that was the first one. Okay, that's what got it all started. And it'll come back around. I oh, know yeah, it, will. it always does. Um, okay, what else do you have over there? Um, let's see. There was one here. Um Disclude, and that is basically exactly what preclude means, <laughs> but in a far more aggressive manner. Because <laughs> preclude means, of course, to make impossible by necessary consequence or rule out in advance. Of course. So this would be ruling out in advance if you disclude something. You're doing so aggressively. Very aggressively. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. 
So you know that that uh, that that one reminds me. You know, sort of mm-hmm. the, the um, in advance of something that mm-hmm. reminds me um, of another word that we have in our yeah. in our lexicon. Right. Right. Priage. Priage. Yep. Which um, I'll just go ahead and, and sure. uh, read that definition yeah. here. So priage uh, is a verb. Working in advance to avoid a problematic or messy situation, editorially speaking. Editorially speaking, speaking. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, a, a more specific uh, definition would be as follows. The assigning of priority order to projects on the basis of how much editorial faith one has <laughs> in the producer of said projects. <laughs> yes. Because sometimes it is necessary to do a little triage. You got to do some triage. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. If no, it's a time. really good idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe said writer can pull it off. Maybe not. Yeah. So if maybe not, then you got to do a little triage. You got to you you lay a little little groundwork there. Yes. And I would I would say that like a lot of a big part, a significant part of an editor's job is to do triage. Oh, you know? absolutely. The planning that we do for content. Uh, it's all it's all you know on some spectrum of triage. That's right. You have to weigh the the work versus the the outcome. Exactly. Um, you know, with the writing contest issue, Mm. um, that we have out, uh, a couple of these sort of came out of that, um, conversation. Um, one of them, well, so we were talking about submissions and how submit is kind of a problematic term for entering work into a contest. Totally. Because it, it's about submission. Right. It's, it's uh, you know, inherently about being in a weaker position. Right. So you send your work to somebody and you, like, you know, give up all power. Right. And that's not how we want to think about this. No. So okay. so we, we came up with <laughs> some alternatives. Yeah, we're not sure if we've landed yet. But <laughs> I don't think these are going to enter into the to common parlance. Um, <laughs> you never know. You never know. Uh, submaster. Would be submaster. one, not submit, but submaster. Submaster. Yes, um, that would be uh, a verb to send an application, proposal, or piece of work to an editor with purpose, power, and pride. Mm. Uh, a synonym of that would be to supermit. <laughs> <laughs> supermit. That does. That one doesn't quite uh, flow off the tongue. Yeah, quite, quite as quite as well as submaster. I do like submaster. Yes, I really like having that master in there. Yep. Um, another uh, related word would be entropy. I'm going to go ahead and spell that for everybody who's listening. Entropy, E-N-T-R-O-F-E-E. That's right. Entropy. Right. That's a noun. And that would be the entropy or process of degradation or running down or a trend to disorder right. that occurs when one spends too much time and money on writing contests with little or no success. <laughs> I, for instance, have experienced entropy. Entropy. In I life. as well. Yeah. I as well. Probably a lot of writers have. It's a trend to disorder. <laughs> <laughs> trend to disorder. When, when entering contests. Yeah. Entropy. Entropy. That's a good that's one. Good. Yeah. That's, that's one of my favorites, I think. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have? Um, well, here's an odd one. <laughs> it's hard. It's actually kind of hard to say. Okay. Humanity. <laughs> Humanity. 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 Sorry. Humanity. Yes. Humanity. So this is interesting because it's spelled like humanity, right? It looks <laughs> like it's humanity. That might be why I'm having a hard time with it. Yeah. You, know. you see humanity on, right. on the page, but what right. you are saying is humanity. Right. And that, that is a noun. Mm-hmm. And it is the humidity (laughs) 
caused by a large group of people in a closed space, as in a crowded subway car in the summer. Yes. Also, human, as in, quote, it's so human in here that my blouse is soaked. <laughs> that one's kind of gross. It's disgusting. But, but it's so is humidity. Yeah, it's really nasty. You've yeah. all been there. You're yep. just like in this enclosed space. There's right. tons of human bodies around, right. which are disgusting in the summer. Let's right. be real. New York City subway car in oh, the summer. And, and it's there's... just so close. And it's bodily. Mm. Humidity. Okay. Um, what else? Well, there's, there's one in here. Um, there's two related ones. And these are really just adverbial alternatives. Yes. Um, Thenceforth, mm-hmm. thenceforth should be a word. Thenceforth I th- I is think great. It really should be. It's also just really fun to say. It really rolls off the right. tongue. Thenceforth. So that's an adverb. It's the logical combination of therefore and henceforth. Mm-hmm. Um, Clearly, henceforth. You know, for that reason, from this point. Mm-hmm. Dot dot dot. <laughs> uh, also, with the editorial bent in mind, mm-hmm. typically proclaimed an irritation mm-hmm. when an editor has been pushed to the brink. That's right. Thenceforth, I shall not. <laughs> work with this person anymore <laughs> finger in the air it's really a proclamation it is a proclamation yes and a related one would be Wentz Point Wentz Point that one I'm less sure of but you know I it's like Wentz Point at, at Wentz Point at Wentz Point yeah at the, Wentz Point I will no longer work with you <laughs> at which point right Wentz Point Wentz Point we have one other we have one one more here on the list mm-hmm. which I, I, I really like mm-hmm. not just because of its backstory yeah. uh, but Kevin also coined this one. Um, I think most of these are Kevin coinages, actually. <laughs> if not all of them, maybe. Well, <clears throat> looks, you, you know, you work with words enough. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna wordsmithing. Reach the limit. Yes. Um, this is vivacious, mm. uh, which is an adjective. Yeah. Um, it means lively in temper, leaning toward ferocity. Right. I.e., it's fun until it isn't. <laughs> Yeah, right. So it's it's vicious and vivacious. Vivacious, but with a lean toward vicious. Right. And this came about, I believe it was when we were recording an episode of Ampersand. Mm, yeah. And I was, if I'm recalling this correctly, I was particularly punchy that day. Well, I think we had been recording for we had been. a while. It had been fun, and it was like starting you, to become maybe like a little bit exhausting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was getting punchy, and... You said something, and then I was like, "I'm just full of vim and vigor." Right. And you said, "You're vivacious." Vivacious. You, you were you were pushed to the point of viviciousness. I'm into it. I'm into Vivicity? it. Vivicity. Vivicity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, again, if anyone has any other uh, words uh, that aren't words but should be words, um, send us an email uh, ampersand at pw.org. We will add them to our uh, growing library. Sticky note lexicon. And perhaps we will discuss them. All right. The May-June issue is out, and in it we have a Q&A with Leslie Jameson about her new book, The Recovering, Intoxication and Its Aftermath, which is out in April from Little Brown. The book is Jameson's third and her second work of nonfiction, a follow-up to her 2014 New York Times bestselling essay collection, The Empathy Exams. The Recovering is a fascinating exploration of addiction, 
Um, but it's not a typical addiction memoir. It is about Jameson's own struggle with alcoholism and chronicles some of the darker parts of her life, including years she spent at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. But it's also about the process of recovery. And Jameson says in the interview that part of writing the book was an attempt to make that narrative of recovery as interesting, maybe even more interesting, as the narrative of falling apart. And part of what makes the book so fascinating is that Jameson explores the myth of the alcoholic, and specifically the stories we tell about alcoholism and writing. She writes about the lives of John Berryman and John Cheever, Dennis Johnson, Charles Jackson, and Jean Rice, as well as other artists like Billie Holiday. And she looks at the difference in the ways we tell the stories of male alcoholics and female alcoholics, how men tend to get romanticized for their addictions while women are shamed, and the way we depict white addicts versus black addicts. It's a really excellent book told with what has become Jameson's trademark weaving of the personal and reportage. It's also going to be an audiobook narrated by Leslie herself, and we have a clip of that courtesy of Hachette Audio. So here she is reading an early section of The Recovering. If I had to say where my drinking began, which first time began it, I might say it started with my first blackout, or maybe the first time I sought blackout, the first time I wanted nothing more than to be absent from my own life. Maybe it started the first time I threw up from drinking, the first time I dreamed about drinking, the first time I lied about drinking, the first time I dreamed about lying about drinking. When the craving had gotten so deep, there wasn't much of me that wasn't committed to either serving or fighting it. Maybe my drinking began with patterns rather than moments, once I started drinking every day, which happened in Iowa City, where the drinking didn't seem dramatic and pronounced so much as encompassing and inevitable. There were so many ways and places to get drunk. The fiction bar in a smoky double-wide trailer with a stuffed fox head and a bunch of broken clocks. Or the poetry bar down the street with its anemic cheeseburgers and glowing Schlitz ad, a scrolling electric landscape. The gurgling stream, the neon grassy banks, the flickering waterfall. I mashed the lime in my vodka tonic and glimpsed in the sweet spot between two drinks and three then three and four, then four and five, my life as something illuminated from the inside. There were parties at a place called the Farmhouse out in the cornfields past Friday fish fries at the American Legion. These were parties where poets wrestled in a kiddie pool full of jello and everyone's profile looked beautiful in the crackling light of a mattress bonfire. Winters were cold enough to kill you. There were endless potlucks where older writers brought braised meats and younger writers brought plastic tubs of hummus and everyone brought whiskey and everyone brought wine. Winter kept going. We kept drinking. Then it was spring. We kept drinking then too. We weren't the first people who'd gotten drunk in Iowa. We knew that. The myths of Iowa City drinking ran like subterranean rivers beneath the drinking we were doing. They surged with dreamlike tales of dysfunction. Raymond Carver and John Cheever tire squealing through early morning grocery store parking lots to restock their liquor stash. John Berryman opening bar tabs on Dubuque Street and ranting about Whitman till dawn, playing chess and leaving his bishops vulnerable. 
Dennis Johnson getting drunk at the Vine and writing short stories about getting drunk at the Vine. We got drunk at the Vine, too, though it was in a different building now, on a different block. We knew this, too, how imprecisely we squatted in the old tales, how we only got them in glimpses and imperfect replicas. I often thought about Iowa with that we. We drank here. We drank there. We drank somehow with those who would drink after us, just as we drank with those who had come before. One of Johnson's poems described being just a poor mortal human who had stumbled onto the glen where the failed gods are drinking. When Cheever showed up to teach in Iowa, he was grateful for the glen. It was a place where he could drink without his family asking why he was killing himself. Back home, he'd been hiding bottles under car seats and lacing his iced tea with gin. But in Iowa, there was no need to pretend. Carver drove him to the liquor store first thing in the morning. It opened at 9, so they left at 8.45, and Cheever would be opening the car door before the car was fully stopped. Of their friendship, Carver said, he and I did nothing but drink. A lot of fake news out there. You don't really know what's real and what's not, right? You don't. You really don't. No. Between what is perpetuated by, well, our president, yeah. Twitter, Twitter, social media in general. Yep. Just, just being alive today. It is what Kevin Young calls in his recent book, Bunk, the rise of hoaxes, humbug, plagiarists, phonies, post-facts, and fake news. Post-facts. It's is a it? post-fact world. That's what we're reduced to. Yeah. I reject that notion. Yeah. You know it's not fake news. Poets and Writers Magazine. That is true. In fact, <laughs> we have somebody on our staff here who's I, a good portion of her job is dedicated mm -hmm. yep. to finding the facts. Finding the facts. Nailing down the facts. Nailing down the, just the facts, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Which I, I would wager is a pretty, uh, is a job that is in short supply these days. I I hope not. There should be armies of fact checkers. <laughs> there really should be. Armies. Yeah. Um, yes, Nadia. Nadia. Nadia knows. When we don't know, Nadia, Nadia knows. <laughs> Nadia knows. Let's see what she's uncovered this issue. Let's do it. All right, I'm going to call her. Hi, Nadia. Hi, Nadia. Do you have a second? Sure. All right. Hi. Have a seat. Sure. <laughs> All right. Nadia Ahmad, our star fact checker. Sure. <laughs> so, I can't confirm that. <laughs> so what uh what did what did you find in this issue? Um well one of the one of the um pieces we've got in this issue is a feature of uh, Carmen Jimenez Smith mm -hmm. um by Rigoberto Gonzalez. And uh, in her bio, um, in the introduction to the piece, uh, 
uh, I found out that she's working on an anthology um, with a writer named Zachary Payne mm-hmm. um, on writings from a Peruvian uh, poetry movement called the Cloaca Movement mm-hmm. from the 1980s. Um, and it's I found out in my research that it's often uh, compared to the beat movement hmm. of the 50s here. Interesting. Yeah. And the anthology, it's an anthology that she's working on. Yes, it is an anthology. That reminds me, you discovered something about the word anthology about, was it last issue? Right. In the March-April issue, there was a piece by um, Stephanie Stokes-Oliver called Redemption Song. Mm -hmm. And she she actually provided the meaning of the word anthology, um, Mm -hmm. which comes from the Greek Mm -hmm. uh, anthos, which means flower. Mm -hmm. And I think the word is... uh, Legain to to gather. So an anthology is like a gathering of flowers, which is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. Yeah. So you're just stringing things along and putting them together in one place. <laughs> That's excellent. So what's it like to, um, you know, check all the facts in this uh, fake news world we have? It is a little anxiety-inducing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I guess... That's something I think about a lot. Like, how far is one supposed to go right. to check the fact? Right. Like, when does, when does it end? When does it end? Right. Do you, do, you know, do you really need to know whether some sort of urban <laughs> legend about a writer writing right. a whole book during his lunch break is really true? Right. How, right. You know, or do you just leave it as, as the myth? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important work, I hope. Absolutely. We appreciate you going the extra mile for us and uh, Anytime. getting all the facts straight. So if you too would like to be a star fact checker for Poets and Writers Magazine, we have a really great fellowship program. Uh, it's uh, There are two 10-month fellowships, uh, and so they work out of our New York City offices, uh, one on the print side and one online. And uh, applications for that will be opening up this summer. Yes, indeed. And Nadia mentioned a Q&A with Carmen Jimenez-Smith, whose new poetry collection, Cruel Futures, is out this month from City Lights. That's right. It's her sixth book and her fifth book of poetry. And frankly, it's a badass collection of strong, sharp poems in which she tackles subjects as divergent as Alzheimer's, Medusa, Mumblecore, and mental illness. Uh, On the one hand, she's analyzing popular culture and the media machine, and on the other, she's exploring the many social roles that women occupy as mother, daughter, partner, and the resulting struggle to maintain an individual identity. Contributing editor Rigoberto Gonzalez interviews her about the book, as well as activism, identity, and the work she does for emerging Latinx poets. Jimenez Smith is the publisher of Noemi Press, as well as a professor of English and creative writing at Virginia Tech. She also serves on the faculty of Bennington College's Low Residency MFA program and is chair of the organizing committee for Contamundo, a national organization that nurtures Latinx poets. And she's the mother of two. And if all that's not enough, (laughs) as of last year, she serves as poetry editor alongside critic Stephanie Burt at The Nation. She's an extremely busy poet, Mm -hmm. and her achievements haven't come without a cost. Uh, One of my favorite parts of the interview is when Rigoberto asks her about the expectation of labor, particularly for women and people of color, and what advice she has for others navigating the profession. She says, quote, my first piece of advice to my younger sisters in art and poetry would be that we can't give ourselves over too much to our work. 
that we have to continue to protect ourselves so that it doesn't preclude our ability to take joy in the pleasures that we are due as human beings. The pleasures that we are due as human beings. That's pretty great. That is a beautiful sentiment. So we asked Carmen to read a poem from that new book for us, and we are going to hear that now. This is Carmen Jimenez-Smith, and I will be reading the poem Liberate Me from Cool Futures. My belly triggers memories of the living and the dead. My belly is a good armrest for texting. I like my belly because all female bodies are intoxicating terrains. My belly, a waterbed for your paternal head. My daughter pushes into my belly button because that's where we are connected. My belly's post-capitalist gurgles. I stroke it at night. I made this, I whisper. My belly sets rooms on fire rhetorically. I like my belly because it is my belly, not quite new a thing. I said kiss that belly because that belly will change your life. I inhabit the forest of my belly like an endangered and spotted owl. I hop into a stream, never the same one. I build a fire from the aphorisms from the cherry tree sprouting from my belly button. A belly never stops being beautiful. Alleluia belly. I love my belly because the insides are all scarred up from living fast. The scars in my belly are work days and blowing winds and figurative cannibalism. So lux my belly. I can think of about five non-related people I would let lick my belly all over. My belly is not political resistance, alas. This belly of one woman axe, olive undulations of grain. The fluidity of my belly's size is an assertion of my absolute powers. It's a foxy round brown belly. If I could write poems using only my belly, my life would be a different story. So May-June is our writing contest issue, and one of the pieces in our special section is on Extended Deadlines by Maya Popa. Mm-hmm. And uh, Extended Deadlines, you don't really think about them too much, right? You don't. They happen. A lot. A lot. Well, a lot more once you start thinking about it. Yes. I was not aware that it happened so frequently until we started working on this piece. Right, right. And then I noticed like a, an announcement in my inbox pretty much every day. Every day. Um, so... Maybe that's not such a big deal. But when you start thinking about it, I don't know, so I, we know that some writers uh, do take issue with this, mm-hmm. essentially because they're following the guidelines and they expect the contest sponsor to follow the guidelines as well and not change them, you know, when the deadline's up. Right. And uh, they might feel like, you know, by extending the deadline, the sponsor, the contest sponsor has widened the pool. They, right. they have ostensibly widened the pool of applicants or, you know, submissions. Yes. And, uh, it beg- and it begs the question, are you doing this just because you want more entry fees? Right. So we took a closer look at the issue and um, you can find that online at pw.org. And we would love to hear what you think. Uh, so send us an email, editor at pw.org, uh, and let us know how you feel about extended deadlines. 
We also have an essay in the new issue by Lisa Cross-Smith, whose debut novel, Whiskey and Ribbons, came out last month from Hub City Press. The essay, which is titled Some Room to Breathe, is a defense of quiet books, which, like her own, she says are, quote, books that don't feel the need to scream, books that can whisper while still telling their stories fully and beautifully, books that can be safe places in an unsafe world. You know, just reading about Lisa's work and her writing process is a little like meditation itself, so we thought hearing her read might have a similar effect. So here she is with the opening section of her essay, Some Room to Breathe, in praise of quiet books. Quiet books are too often misread, misunderstood, or sadly, missed altogether. If a book is labeled quiet in a review or in a literary conversation, an author and her readers will likely see it as an insult, sharp criticism of some deep-rooted flaw in the writer's storytelling abilities. But for me, someone who leans toward anxiety and is easily overstimulated, startled and stressed out, especially these days, quiet books offer a calming space, a place of rescue. I've been told more than once that my writing is quiet, and I always take it as a high compliment because I know how much I long for moments of rest and reflection in the books I read, the movies I watch, the places I go, and the people I encounter along the way. I suspect I'm not alone. In my debut novel, Whiskey and Ribbons, a widow and her brother-in-law are snowed in together during a blizzard, forced to deal with the complications of their newish romantic feelings for each other after the sudden loss of someone they both love ferociously. Throughout the book, they circle each other with their intense grief and their confusing feelings from the warmth and comfort of their home. A lot happens. Loud secrets, loud jealousy, loud emotions, loud sexual tension, loud love. But there's also quiet. It is a quiet book, and that's just the way I want it. In a noisy, confusing world where so many people love to constantly scream their opinions as loudly and as quickly as they can on social media, I'm drawn to longer works that take their time. Ideas and situations that give me room to think. Characters and plots that require my patience and pay off in real, satisfying ways. I don't like to be shocked or surprised on every page when I'm reading. I don't necessarily need a big twist or reveal to be entertained. Don't get me wrong, I love a good story. I'm not defending the boring and pointless. But I will always believe there's treasure to be found in small, quiet moments. In the rambling, half-asleep conversations right before bed the hushed confessionals on the way home from the awkward dinner party, a silent glance between lifelong partners, the whisper. There's a song by Feist called Gatekeeper in which she sings, they tried to stay in from the cold and wind, making love and making their dinner. And I think of that often when I'm writing. I like writing about those simple everyday things we do to get through our lives. I do some of my best writing away from my noisy laptop. I walk two to three miles a day in the morning, at least five times a week. I usually walk alone and enjoy my solitude. It's where I get my energy. I pause to take notes on my phone if I see something that sparks my heart. I walk in the rain and I walk in the cold. I walk when spring is just beginning to wake the flowers. I walk when the first leaves begin to turn and fall. I make note of these things, these cycles. And I remember them when I sit down again to write. I remember how important it is to my mental health to take the time to look around, take the time to look up. After my walks, when I'm in that calming, comfortable writing space of my own, I can recreate that same sort of space for my characters and my books and stories, a room of their own. Most of the time I write in my quiet bedroom on my made-up bed by the window, 
We have several huge trees on our property in Kentucky, and I love being by the window so I can watch the birds, the squirrels. I'm a birder, and birding requires quiet, stillness. I can open my window when it's warm enough and hear the bird song, the wind chimes, the rustle of leaves. I can also see my garden from the window, the bird bath, my peonies, tomato plants and marigolds, the weeping willow at the edge of the yard. I have an essential oil diffuser that I fill with drops of lavender and lemon, sometimes rosemary and lime, peaceful, quiet smells. I rarely listen to music when I'm riding, preferring instead the quiet around me, but when I do, I listen to period piece soundtracks or classical music. Far from the matting crowd, atonement, and pride and prejudice are some of my favorites. I also love Bach's cello suites, Debussy, Mozart, Chopin. Music without lyrics, but heavy with mood. I've always craved quiet spaces, avoided loud noises and enormous crowds, but even more so in this mind-numbing, patrolic, political climate where there is more than enough anxiety to go around. I work even harder to protect those quiet places in my real life and in my heart as well. I rely on writing and reading fiction that counters the inevitable anxiety of being human with some quiet, some room to breathe. Quietness can be a beautifully defiant, radical act. Deliberately slow cooking, slow living, taking time to be grateful and to absorb things and aggressively avoiding the need to quickly comment on everything. These things spill over into both my writing practice and the stories and worlds I create. One of the books featured in page one this issue is Eye Level, the debut poetry collection by Jenny Shia. It was the winner of the Academy of American Poets Walt Whitman Prize and is out in April from Grey Wolf Press. And a little bit of Poets and Writers trivia. A few years ago, Jenny was an editorial fellow here at our offices in New York. She was. She and I were actually fellows at the same time, nigh seven years ago. And our desks were right next to each other. That's right. And now, of course, she's an award-winning poet. She is indeed. And her book is really beautiful. So we asked her to read an excerpt for us. And here she is with a poem from Eye Level. Invisible Relations. There are no simple stories because language forces distances. The day's gummy and without drink. And a question stammers in the mind for weeks one key a quiver on the piano. In the course of a day, your head will point in all the cardinal directions. It is good to wake and sleep, to scrape jars with spoons. Nights, great popsicles sow sugar into your mouth. Police sirens clean the air and the TV burns out. Without your knowing, the unseen borders of your hunger are redrawn. Far off, you're being stitched into a storyline in a smooth lobe of another's mind.
it for this episode. Tune in next time when we will probably be dealing with some serious humidity here in New York. <laughs> yeah, this, this city gets superhuman in the summer. <laughs> you know, it, it discludes me from functioning, really, especially mm-hmm. if I have to take the train. Yeah, maybe we should start doing some triage now. Mm, maybe, yes. Uh, and we'll let you know how it goes. Wentz point. <laughs> On ampersand. The Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Kevin McLeod, Ryan Little, The Vivisectors, Akebe Shakedown, and Planet Wardo. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including more from Lisa Cross-Smith on Quiet Books and Maya Popa's article on extended contest deadlines at pw.org forward slash ampersand. ampersand.